cities are basically designed, they're human structures and systems. It's a grouping of um, human structures and systems to meet needs. At the end of the day, that's what a city is. And so a bunch of people come together and they combine kind of skills, talents, abilities, ideas, and each city has its own kind of unique way that they go about meeting human needs, and each city has its own culture. And if you've lived in more than one city, you've probably picked up on this before, but coming from Denver to Washington, D.C., I noticed a couple of the differences of the cities. And one of the differences that I noticed that in Denver on Fridays at like 11 o'clock in the morning, people like crack a beer at work and they start packing up their work stuff, everybody. And they get in their cars in the winter and they all get on one road and go into the mountains. And then they spend the whole weekend skiing. And so for the longest time being here on Fridays, I would get really tired at like 11.30 when I was still working. Like, what's going on? What's wrong with this city? And so I realized something. Denver tries to meet need by recreation, whereas this area tries to meet need through productivity, through utilization, creation of power, and leveraging that. And so all of that is to show you an example of this reality of cities meeting needs. And when you're in a city, you start to kind of conform to the way that that city works. You're kind of pressured into its rhythms, its rituals, its systems. And so today in Hebrews, we're going to look at the specific pressures of living as a Christian in a city. And the city's a metaphor, but it's any type of human-designed way of meeting human needs. And so we're going to talk about that. So it's, it's not obvious that that's what this is about, because this is written for a specific group of people who are used to meeting their needs in specific ways that sounds very strange to us. But I'll try and show you that that's actually what this passage is about. And so we're coming to the end of Hebrews. We're very close to the end. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, and Hebrews is towards the end of your Bible if you're not familiar with where it's at. Um, and chapter 13 is the last chapter, and we're going to be going from verses 7 to 17, or excuse me, through 19 this morning. So let's read this together. <clears throat> Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate 
in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Please pray with me. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come to you through your Son, who is the same, who is unchanging, who has brought us into fellowship with you. And yet, Lord, we are still living here in this world that is at enmity with you. And the world is not passive towards us. It wants to disciple us. It wants to train us in its ways. And so, Lord, we need you. We need to be reminded of your grace. We need to be reminded of how you have acted in history. And we need you to work through your spirit, through your church, through your word. And so, Lord, I ask that you would strengthen us this morning, that you would help us to cling to you and to go only to your Son because it is only in him that we receive that eternal kingdom. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to walk through this text a little bit differently than how it's laid out just because I want to show us, um, I want us to see clearly what is actually happening in the center of this text. And it's all of that talk about eating food and the food being like sacrificed outside the city and then eaten by some people, but it's no benefit. And it's all very strange. And so what is actually happening here is that the author is putting pressure on this group of Christians to come out of their old systems their old way of acting, their old way of living. And they're primarily Jewish in descent and worship. And so as they put their faith in Christ, they were still in those circles, right? We've talked about this. Like They, were, they still had the same family. They still had the same friends. They still lived in the same houses, and they still had the same rhythms, and what the author is saying is that those rhythms are pulling you out of faith in Christ because they're trying to meet this need in a different way. And the, the main need that he's pointing to is a need that every person feels, and it's their separation from God. So when he's talking about these animals and the sacrifice, he's alluding to the Day of Atonement that would happen in Jewish worship. 
And atonement is basically bringing two disparate parties together, two parties that are at enmity with each other together. And so for um, the old covenant, God wanted his people to look forward to that day through this system, through offering these animals. And the priests would offer the sacrifice and then they would eat the animals. And then as the Jews were scattered throughout the land and the temple was over, over, uh, overtaken by an occupying force, they created these meals that they would have at their tables to remember and to commemorate that day, the Day of Atonement. And they attributed actual um, religious significance and power to those meals. They thought that they would actually be made holy through eating and drinking the food that was prescribed at those meals. And it, you know, it took a lot of different forms as time went on. Um, but we can tell that that's what the author is talking about here. He's talking about these Christians who are being called to those meals. They're being invited to them. And these Christians are kind of like, oh, yeah, hmm, maybe I'll just do that. Maybe, maybe I'll hedge my bets and, like, I'll get double atonement, maybe. Maybe I'll be double holy if I do this, too. So they were adding something to Jesus. And this is, this is something that, like I said at the beginning, this is something that every group of people does. They seek to meet this need for reconciliation, for atonement, in various ways. And one of the ways that people have been known to do this, that's not mentioned here in the text, but it's, we have to talk about it because it's in our world, is that they just take God out of the equation. So you don't need atonement if you remove God. The problem is that we are designed to worship. We are designed to serve a God. We are designed to long for something transcendent. And so what ends up happening is we put ourselves in that place. So, and I would say that this is the prevalent um, and the predominant way that we are pressured in the city we live in, in the culture that we live in, is to worship ourselves. So to remove God. And then the other way, which he's talking about here, is to find a human way of atonement, a human way of making atonement. Where it's something that we do, something that we earn, so that we are now at peace with God. And this, um, you know, this is something that happens all the time in the church. You can be a Christian as long as you do this, this, and this. You can be right with God as long as you listen to this kind of music, as long as you don't watch this kind of thing, as long as you don't drink, as long as you don't dance. There's any number of different ways that we do this, but it's all the same, isn't it? Stuff that we do that's in our control. And that is really reminiscent of this old covenant way of operating. And you can see how they've been deceived. The old covenant, as we've learned in Hebrews, was only given to the people to prepare them 
for the new covenant, to get them ready for it. It was given by God for a time and a season, and so I understand why they're confused, but at the same time, the appearance of Jesus, his teaching, his work on the cross, it would have become crystal clear for anyone who is truly trusting in God, trusting in the promise of what God would do, not in their own performance of the legal code, that they would have left that behind and embraced Christ as their Savior, as their Lord, as the Messiah, as the promised one. But a lot of people did not. And so you still have this system in place. You still have these rituals that are designed to make atonement. And it's starting to wound the consciences of these Christians who are confessing No, we have been made one with God. We are reconciled through our high priest who lives and makes intercession for us. But when you confess one thing and then you do another, it's going to create tension. And they're living in this tension. And so the author is going out of his way at the end of this book to show us that it's only Jesus that fills this need. Only Jesus. Jesus isn't one way. He is the only way. He's not something that you can add anything to. He's exclusive. The claim of his cross and his resurrection is an exclusive claim because it shows us that this is a work of God. It's not a work of human strength. We cannot resurrect ourselves from the dead, friends. We can't sacrifice ourselves on behalf of other people. This is a work and an act of God and from God. And so as the author is kind of wanting to put the audience back into a remembrance of this. He's saying like, no, it's only Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the greater, he's greater than the angels. He is better than anything you can do. He gives them some practical reminders. He says, okay, remember your leaders. And these are past leaders. Remember your leaders of old, those who spoke to you the word of God and consider that outcome of their faith outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. So he's saying, like, remember those people. And he's almost certainly here talking about the apostles, the ones who spoke to them the word of God. So remember them. Here's what you do when you remember the apostles. Out of all of the apostles, from what we know and the historical record that we have, there is only one who was not martyred. And that was John and he was exiled to die on an island. Okay, consider the outcome of their way of life. Wow. What he is saying is that your faith in Christ will lead you into tension. It will lead you into difficulty, not out of it. 
And so in the context of this system that they are trying to navigate, this old way of life with their new faith, what the author is saying by saying consider them is he's saying Jesus is worth it. He is worth your sacrifice. He is worth your fidelity. He is worth your faithfulness. He is worth the pain, the isolation, and the suffering that will come along with you remaining faithful and true to him and him alone. It's only Jesus that fills that need. This is a message that you will get resistance in if you haven't already. I'll just share really quickly a story of when I first became a Christian, how this kind of happened, right? So I learned how to meet that need in high school and my whole life, really, by essentially removing God and indulging in whatever I wanted to do. So I was worshiping myself as God, and I found friends who liked to do that too. And so we would go out, and we would drink, and we would drink a lot, And so I went to college, became a Christian, would come back and meet up with those friends. And I remember one night, went out to a bar with them and had one drink with them, had another drink with them, and then I stopped drinking. And they were like, what's wrong? And I shared to them that I don't do this anymore because I don't need to. I have something else that is filling me. I don't need to escape. I don't need to indulge in this. I didn't get invited out again, right? Like, there was a pressure that that put, and maybe I shared it wrong, I don't know, I probably did, I was awkward, I can't help it. (laughs) But what was clear is that my exclusive devotion to Jesus was weird for them, and it also made them very uncomfortable because it hinted at the insufficiency of their system. And it speaks deeply to the need and the longing for our souls. Look in how the author describes this. He says that our hearts need to be strengthened by grace. We have weak hearts, all of us. We have hearts that doubt We have hearts that worry. We have hearts that fear. That's true for every single human. And the way that we strengthen our hearts is through grace, is through receiving the grace of Christ. And that's the only thing that strengthens our hearts. They were eating these foods and saying that these foods are what strengthen them. And guess what? If you sit down at a table with other people who are like you and you eat good food and you say the same things and there's continuity in that, there's a sense of belonging in that, you will be strengthened. But that strength will fail because the food will be digested and at some point you're no longer going to be able to eat. So the author is saying, strengthen yourself by grace. And he's pointing back to that central event of Jesus' life, his cross and his resurrection. 
to show them what those meals want, what they're trying to accomplish, Jesus has fulfilled. And it's his blood that accomplishes what those meals are trying to do. There's the same correspondence no matter where you fit in. No matter how you're trying to meet your own need, there's the same correspondence. If you're looking for belonging, if you're looking for friendship, if you're looking for affirmation, if you're looking for meaning, it's only found in Christ. It's only found in Christ. And so... The author tells us in verse 13, let's go to him. If meaning is only found in Christ, then we must go to him. If atonement is only found in Christ, then go to him. But where is he? He's outside the camp. He's outside the city. He stands apart from those human methods and means of fulfillment, of meeting the need. He's out there. And so when we go to Jesus, think about this. This is very concrete for these people. For us, it's a little more abstract probably. But it's very concrete for them because when they are going to Jesus outside the camp, it means they're not going to the temple to bring their animal to offer as a way of covering the sins of their family. And so... Who sees that? The whole city. The whole city sees where they're going. The whole city sees where they're not going. And there's shame. And that's where Jesus is to be found. Outside of those things. So we go to him. And the author says, yes, there will be reproach. And it's the same reproach that he already has endured for us. So go to him where he must be found, outside the camp. This is the public witness of our faith. And so I want to take a minute and talk to you about this because I think we don't like to think about this often. And I understand it because it's not fun to be scorned. But there's a lot of ways where we need to be willing to take on the scorn of Christ for the sake of that public witness, for the sake of identifying with Christ, for the sake of the city, for the sake of the clarity of the gospel, the exclusivity of its claims. This is not one of many ways to be reconciled to God. It is the only way. And so there's going to be some things that you don't do that are weird. There's going to be some things that you do that are weird. And in order to identify those things, we first have to see, like, okay, how, how does our city worship? That's a weird thing. That's a weird question to ask. How does our city worship? What are the systems of our culture that seek to meet needs? And I think I already gave it away a little bit, but It's got to be we worship ourselves, and we worship ourselves together a lot of the time. What are the liturgies of the life of our city? What are the habits 
that are formed. Well, here's one of them that I don't want to think about. It's entertainment. It's how we strengthen our hearts, isn't it? After a hard day at work, after a day that you want to forget, what do you pull up on your phone? Are you actually praying in that time, or are you trying to medicate? Are you trying to numb? What is that entertainment doing? What about belonging? What gives you a sense of belonging in this city? And is that something that is in tension with your faith? And what happens when that tension exists? Where do you relieve it? Do you let go of following Jesus, of going to him outside the camp? Or are you willing to bear the reproach and the shame? There's a lot of different ways. Again, I, I can only imagine some of the ways this happens. This might mean that you leave work earlier than your coworkers. Because you're like, you know what? I work unto the Lord. I'm not trying to fix the world's problems. That's too big for me. And I know that there's a lot of people in the city who are trying to fix the world's problems in human strength. And you will be pressured to do that. So what are you going to do? Maybe it has to do with the content that your mind is occupied by. Similar to entertainment. Do you fill your mind with things that take you away from God. Because that's what people talk about, isn't it? What if a TV show is out, is kind of goes against your conscience, but everybody in your office is watching it? There's going to be pressure that's put on you. Like, Don't be one of those Christians. It's not that big of a deal. Just watch it. There's tension. And so the author is telling us, don't give in to that. Remember your leaders. And yet, at the same time, the reality is that those leaders are dead. They're gone. Time has gone on. And so this is why the author gives us verse 8, which you've probably heard before, but maybe never consider the context of it. He gives us verse 8 to root us and ground us, even in the midst of tumultuous change and chaos of our lives. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He sustained them. Remember chapter 11 of Hebrews? It goes through all of the Old Testament saints. Jesus Christ sustained them. He sustained the apostles even through martyrdom. He's sustaining you. He is unchanging. Your leaders might change. The ones who spoke to you the word of God are gone. He remains. He lives to make intercession for you. He is the same. And so we can take courage to let go systematically, progressively, more and more, 
to let go of those old ways of meeting this need, to live in the tension, to take on the shame and the scorn of a world that doesn't want you to be long to Christ exclusively. Because he is the one who is sustaining. And as we go to him, he meets us. And he meets us in his death and resurrection. And he reminds us of how completely he fills that need, that longing to be reunited and reconciled to God. So we go to him outside the camp where he can be found. And we need the church to keep on going there. Verse 7 and verse 17 kind of form a bracket on this passage where he says, remember your leaders of old. And in 17, obey your leader, your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your soul. We need the church to keep on going to Jesus. And so this is, this is a really great opportunity to reflect on the relationship between the elders and the church. You didn't know we were going to have a DTR, but we're going to have a DTR. What is the relationship of the elders and the church? What is the job of the elders and the job of the church in this new community, this new city that is forming around the cross, around the resurrection? It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they are keeping watch over your soul. The elders have received a call from God to help you, to lead you. But guess what? Where are we leading you? We're leading you to Christ who is outside the camp. So that is going to be hard. There's going to be times where the elders feel pressure to let go of something because we don't want to face the reproach. We don't want to bear the shame. There's going to be times where you feel tempted to resist, and it might be very passive resistance. It might be completely internal. But as you hear one of the elders leading you to Christ in an uncomfortable manner or to an uncomfortable conclusion, there's kind of like, ooh, and that creates a coolness and a distance. But what the author of Hebrews is calling them to is he's reminding them, no, this is for your good. And there's going to be times where that's uncomfortable. There's going to be times where it hurts. There's going to be times where you don't like it. I know all of that because I also submit to the elders. We all need this. We need the people who God has called to watch over our souls, to continue to bring us Christ in his word, to continue to call us out of the world and into the city that is, that is to come. And so for every, all of our elders, we are grounded in the reality that our job is to lead people to Christ, regardless of what kind of shame that brings, 
regardless of the pressure, regardless of the consequences, we are to lead people to Christ. And we do that first through example. We're not saying something that we can't do, that we're not doing. Look at what he calls them to do. First, the old leaders consider the outcome of their way of life. So actually look at what they did. Look at how they lived. And then when he's talking about the present leaders, he reminds those leaders, you will give an account for how you did that. And so you have to be living this yourself. So there should be a transparency between the elders and the church. You should be able to see the life of the elders. You should know them. They should be among you. And praise God, I think we, are, we do that at this church. We don't have like a community group that's just for the elders that nobody else can go into. No, we, we are in the community, opening homes, seeing like we're not perfect, but we go to Christ. And we know that he is the only way to meet these needs. So we do it through our example. We also do it through the word. In verse 9, the author is saying, do not be led away by these diverse teachings. How you are not led away by diverse teachings is by receiving the true teaching as contained in the word. And so being called to an elder is being called to be a man of the word who is leading people in the word, by the word and back to the word. We don't do this through charisma. We don't do it through really cool leadership strategies. We don't do this through events. We do it by the Spirit and the Spirit's book, the word. And then finally, we do it through prayer. How do we watch over? What's the primary way that we watch over the souls of the people of this church? We pray for you guys. Because you know why? In our own strength, we can't do this. Like watching over the soul of another human being, that's terrifying. I can't even watch over my own soul, right? So we go to the Lord and intercede, and we meet Christ at the right hand of the Father, and he's there interceding with us. So we are called to pray. That's a job description for the elders of this church. So encourage that in us. Because if we live in tension of trying to be, one, <laughs> one pastor has called it, um, being an activities director on a, on a cruise ship. Like there's tension there between those two job descriptions. So encourage that in us. Pray for us. And yes, when, when we are fulfilling our calling, follow us because we are going to Christ. We're going to Christ. We'll meet you there. So here's what I want you to do um, in response this morning. And it's going to be very, very much right out of the text here. I want you to pray for us. We're praying for you. Pray for us in these specific ways. 
And I'll probably give this to um, Sandy and to Star so that there'll be reminders of this. But pray that the Lord will keep us faithful to the end. Because we want to receive the kingdom and the king that is to come. And you only receive that when you're faithful to the end. So pray for that. We need that. And then pray that we would offer up a sacrifice of praise. And when I say pray for us, I'm talking about the whole church. Pray that we would offer up a sacrifice of praise. The author encourages his audience and us to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Think about those two words put together, sacrifice and praise. Praise is a proclamation, speaking and singing good things, a building up, a lifting up, an acknowledgement of someone's goodness and beauty and holiness. But sometimes that's a sacrifice. Sometimes we do that with a broken heart. Sometimes we do that in grief. Sometimes we do that in suffering, in pain. In fact, almost all the time we're doing it in those ways. That's why all of the Psalms almost have an acknowledgement of the brokenness of this world, even as they resolve in praise. It's a sacrifice of praise. This is really hard. It's really hard to come and sing praises to God when you're devastated. And so pray that we would do this. This isn't a flippant kind of um, just superficial request. He's saying that this is our response to Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and and forever. It is our response to the blood that sanctifies us, that washes us, and it's our acknowledgement that yes, we will receive a kingdom that is to come. Even as we walk out of this city, we know that there's a better city to come. And so the posture of our hearts, what we should do is to continually offer up the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, to do good, to be generous. And you see the immense freedom that we have to do that. But we have to exercise it. We have to live it out. So pray for that for our church. And we're going to be praying for you guys. We want to continue to lead you to Christ. That's the only thing this church has but he's found outside the gate. It's hard. There's pressure. It's going to hurt at times. But it's worth it. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We'd be lost without it. We would just make things up. We would seek to meet our needs in our own strength. We would go on replacing you with ourselves as the center of the universe. And we would just be content to remain isolated and alone. But Lord, you had better plans. And so you have called us to yourself through your word, through your spirit, and you have given us your son. And so Lord, help us as your people to continually go to him, to remember that he bore our shame. And so we take on his shame.
knowing that there is an end to our shame, but there is no end to our joy, to our hope, to the love that we will have when we are reunited with Jesus when he returns. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.